Hello everyone and welcome to episode number 11 of The Display Show. I'm your host, Brian Berkeley, and we're here for interactive discussions with key display industry leaders and influencers. Today's episode features Jason Hartlove, who is president and CEO of Nanasys. Nanasys is far and away the leading producer of quantum dots for display applications. As you'll hear in this episode, Jason and I go way back, long before he took over the reins at Nanasys. We talked about developing the world's first optical mouse. We discussed life in Korea, and we focus here on the significant role that quantum dots play in the industry today. You'll also hear about how Nanasys became the industry's quantum dot leader. There's news of a major and recent acquisition by Nanasys, and Jason describes his vision of what to expect for quantum dot applications in the future. Please don't forget to subscribe and hit the bell for notifications when new episodes are released. Now, on with the show. Jason, thanks for being here today and welcome to The Display Show. Hey, thanks, Brian. Um, really love this show. Uh, I've watched all the episodes. Thank you very much for doing it. Oh, they've been great. Um, well, you know, you and I have known each other for a long time, uh, date, dating back to the 1990s. And uh, when you and I met, I was at Apple running displays and input, and you were at HP Labs at the time. Um, That's right. And yeah. a, a lot of people don't realize that you were the father of the optical mouse. That's right. Yeah, Brian, I, was, uh, I knew I was going to be coming on the show today, so I went back and looked around in uh, my little, I kind of keep like a little trophy case of stuff. And this is actually, if you look at the little tag on this guy, this is actually a DVT unit of the first uh, optical mouse from Apple. Uh, that you and I worked on together. So I think that was about 1997 or 98. Yeah, a design validation test unit. And it says mouse prototype on the bottom. Yeah. And yeah. so that's, uh, that's great. Um, and you know what's even cooler? I plugged it in, it still works. Oh yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, don't, they don't fail. And that, that brings up an interesting point. Now for our younger viewers, a lot of people don't realize uh, that uh, mice weren't originally like this. They weren't yeah. originally optical. They, they had a roller ball and they had X and Y quadrature roller bearings. Yeah. And those roller bearings would get gunked up and you'd have to twist the lock and remove yeah. the ball and clean all the stuff off the rollers frequently or the mouse just yeah. wouldn't work very well. So it was a huge uh, improvement. And I think it would be interesting if you could start by telling us about how you went about developing that technology at HP Labs. Sure. So the problem you mentioned was, was a gross one as well because it would pick up all kinds of lint and whatever else was on your desktop. And so, and then you'd pull the ball out and you had all this kind of, almost like cleaning the bottom of the shower drain or something sort of <laughs> effect in the bottom of this thing that was on your desktop, right? So, so that was kind of bad, but then as we got into the process of replacing it, what we found out as well, uh, which I didn't know at the time, was a couple kids every year died choking on the mouse ball because it was a removable part. Wow. And so, yeah, I figure we probably saved, you know, 50 to 100 kids' lives uh, since, the, since that thing's been out for, you know, 25 years. Um, and the mouse balls are all gone now. So, um, yeah, it's a pretty cool, pretty cool little thing. Um, yeah, so the, the origin of the optical mouse was actually this device, um, which is called, at the time, the HP CapShare. 
And so um, this is kind of prototypical of the kind of great innovation that we did at HP Labs back in the day. Um, this was at a time when we knew that things were going to be moving more and more towards being what we call appliances. And, but the, the form factor of what those appliances were going to be wasn't super clear at that time. So HP, of course, being a printing company, believed that everything had to be printed in the future and, and sort of missed the fact that the appliance of the future was going to be the mobile phone. Um, but it developed a lot of other appliance-type devices that you could use and carry around with you and not be tethered to your computer. And one of those was this guy. And this is a portable handheld scanner that we worked on. And it's basically got two optical sensors in there which are the, the, if you will, maybe the grandmother of the optical sensor we wound up developing ultimately for the optical mouse. And what these two guys did was they kept track of how you moved this unit over a piece of paper as you scanned dynamically, right? So you could scan in any kind of a freehand path that you wanted to move in. And these two little sensors would pick up that scanned information and track basically how this is moving and then at the same time, you had this capture bar here, right? And this capture bar was taking actually the visual information of the page scan. And then there was, at the time, you know, seven ARM core processors in this thing that stitched all of that information back together into its original rectilinear form, put it back together into a PDF document, and then you could export it out. But with all that great technology, we were able to sell this thing for $550 at a time when you could get a flatbed scanner for free just by buying a computer. Or you could buy one off the shelf for $29. So it wasn't a huge success. And one of the things that I got tasked with at HP Labs was to look at a bunch of the products that we had developed over time and sort of do a lessons learned and understand the technology and whether or not there were other potential better uses for it. And ultimately, we took the capture technology that was developed for this device. We enhanced it. We changed the algorithms. We made it a lot more smooth and streamlined. Um, we embedded it all into one chip instead of needing all this processing power. A little tiny chip that we were able to ultimately put inside that mouse. Developed a bunch of other detection, like liftoff and other things that were necessary. And then that's, you know, Bob's your uncle. That's how that became a product. So, Well, that's a great example of pivoting yeah, uh, from absolutely. one product into something that would become much more mainstream. Yeah. And, and when I say much more, there have literally been billions of these kinds of devices yeah. uh, that have shipped around the world. I think we sold 250 of these. Yeah, well, so <laughs> how many X is that to go, yeah, you know, to, exactly. to billions um, yeah. uh, of optical mice that, right. that have since shipped? Um, and it's not the only time you've done a big pivot. Uh, we'll mm -hmm. talk about when you first came to Nanosys as yeah. well. Uh, but I guess I'm curious what led you to focus on Apple as a potential partner. Yeah. Uh, why did you end up calling me back yeah. in the day? Yeah. Well, I mean, so this was a technology that, although now it seems very obvious that everybody has adopted it, that, of course, you know, this is a superior way to go. But at the time, mice, as an input device, were really rather boring category uh, as far as how product managers thought about what they were bringing out. 
at the time, we didn't think a whole lot, or product managers anyway, didn't think a whole lot about the user experience at all in general throughout the compute space. And so all the mice were exactly the same. There were these little gray blobs, right, that people just sort of had sitting on their desk. And nobody thought, hey, you know, maybe somebody wants something better. Somebody wants a product with a little bit of an ergonomic shape to it so it fits in their hand better. Or they want something that looks really cool like that thing. You know, it's got this cool kind of double bubble on it, right, with the inside and then the outside, you know, clear glass or clear plastic. No one was thinking that way. But Apple was this really innovative company, right? And so I, I knew that if we took this technology to Apple, they would find a way to incorporate it into some kind of an interesting product that would really make a big splash. And sure enough, you guys did. There was a TV commercial for this mouse, and you know, it was, it was incredible. It was really amazing how this product got launched um, and incorporated not just the new way in which the sensor worked, which of course enabled a new form factor also, one of the things we didn't mention is when you had the ball, the ball had a certain minimum size to it. And so there was no way you could make something that flat and with that kind of a profile. And since then, you know, I've got little travel mice that are only this big that I carry, you know, as part of my you know, travel kit for, for uh, traveling for work. And again, that sensor technology is really small, so that could enable all those new form factors. So. Yeah, working with an innovative uh, market leader was was always what I had in mind because this was a, a very disruptive technology, something completely different than the status quo at the time. And and you know, frankly, the other companies, even my company, I was working at HP Labs. Even my company, nobody within the HP Compute Group had much interest in this. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's pretty amazing. So we've run the ad uh, during this, and and I'll tell you that. Um, we can't play the music because we've got uh, <laughs> copyright license uh, issues, but uh, we have posted the URL yeah. in the video, so if our viewers want to go see that, uh, they'll hear the Steppenwolf and Born to be Wild. Yeah, uh, definitely check it out. Yeah. That was very, very cool. Yeah. Now, a question on CMOS image sensors. You had worked on early camera phones, mm -hmm. and can you tell us a story about your work in that area? Yeah, so the, this was another one that was really interesting as far as today. People love this, right? I, I don't even know how many photos are taken every single day, right? I don't know if it's hundreds of billions or trillions of, of pictures that are captured literally every single day now. And every smartphone has a camera in it. But at the beginning, when we were first you know, coming up with this concept, again, HP Labs had been working in collaboration with JPL and Stanford um, on developing this new CMOS image sensor technology. And in particular, how to build low light sensitive photodiode uh, pixels on CMOS. And so I'd always been working in optical products my whole career, and this was a natural assignment for me to pick up from you know, my, uh, my management and leadership there at HP Labs was how do we best take this forward in the market? And at that time, people had thought about, well, you know, webcams or, you know, maybe there's some application for security. And there was a little bit of this kind of stuff that was going around at the time. But really, I thought, well, people are carrying around every day in their pocket a mobile phone. And so why don't we look at how we can integrate cameras into mobile phones? And I wasn't the only one who thought that this was a good idea, by the way. 
But it was amazing how few phone companies thought this was a good idea. It was absolutely stunning. I remember going to and having very senior level meetings, CEO level meetings between CEO of, of uh, at the time, Agilent Technologies and the CEO of Nokia. And the CEO of Nokia at the time was, was basically saying, well, no, you know, we don't need more features in our phone. We need to make a phone that costs $29, right? And that was their whole strategy. And there, this was great because there was this, con, there was this uh, uh, mobile phone contest or Congress, now it's called GSM. Um, but at the time, I forget what it was called, um, it had a different name. But at the conference, I remember very clearly, one of the leaders in mobile phones at the de in that day was Siemens. And the Siemens guy, the Siemens CEO, challenged the Motorola CEO and the Nokia CEO to a phone-throwing contest. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. Really? <laughs> he said, I can, I'll take your phones and throw them, and you take my phone and throw them, and we'll see which one breaks, right? And so that was innovation, right, was to come up with an unbreakable phone instead of you know, hey, let's try and solve problems that people actually, you know, make these <laughs> devices more interesting for people. And so, you know, it was not at all easy. We eventually found uh, good traction with Sony Ericsson and a few other brands. Uh, and they eventually said, yeah, you know, this would be very interesting. How can we integrate this technology into our mobile data platform, which was just kind of emerging at that point. But even then, the earliest models, you know, very, very clunky user interfaces. You had to push about 12 different buttons on the phone to get the camera to even open, and then how do you use the photos, et cetera. So there's been a tremendous amount of innovation and development in that area, but yeah, we got the first, uh, the first camera modules designed into Motorola and Nokia phones um, back in that time. And, but it, it, wasn't, it wasn't at all obvious. Uh, yeah. to, the, to the management of those companies and the senior management of those companies that this was a good idea. It took a lot of pushing. Um, to get well, to well they were right that low cost is good and that robust and, and reliable is good, but you think about all of the features that people use in mobile devices in their everyday uh, utility, and um, there was a lot of room for innovation. Let's oh, say. yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you know, Tim Cook's uh, done a lot of things. Steve Jobs did a lot of things, but I'm pretty sure neither one of them ever challenged anybody to a phone throwing contest. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, um, there's a little interesting anecdote uh, about the two of us. Now, uh, I lived in Korea, uh, working for Samsung uh, from 2003 until the end of 2011. Yeah. And I believe we had some overlap. Uh, when, when were you in Korea? Yeah, it's amazing. You know, I don't think we knew that each other were in Korea at the same time, living in Korea at the same time, until, you know, relatively recently. I yeah. think like 2011, 2012, 13, something like that. So, yeah, uh, I was there from late 2004. I joined uh, Magnetchip Semiconductor, which was a leveraged buyout of Hynix's non-memory uh, non business. So we bought all of the system LSI business of Hynix in a private equity deal. And we took that private and eventually uh, took it public again um, on the New York Stock Exchange this time instead of in Korea. And uh, the cash infusion that Hynix got from that buyout together with other uh, deals that they did 
you know, really enabled them to be the world leader they are today in, uh, in memory technology. And then also it really created this, this great company in Magnachip that today is the display driver leader, I think, in terms of uh, OLED display drivers. So. Well, well, it's even more incredible that we didn't meet because at the time I was at Samsung Display, I know we were using Magnachip devices yeah. in our panels. Yeah. And uh, somehow we managed to avoid running into each other over there. Uh, and it's, it's not that big of a place. It's kind yeah. of like Silicon Valley. You're bound to run into somebody that you know. Yeah. Uh, but we both had the experience of being expatriates uh, yeah. living in Korea. So I wondered if you could share an anecdote or two about your time over there. Sure. I mean, I, I loved it. Um, Korea was great. Uh, I had always wanted to live outside the U.S. and, and really just become immersed in, in another culture and see the world through other people's eyes. And it was really fantastic for that. Um, you know, one of the things that just always, even today, uh, when I go back to Korea and, and if I'm on a business trip with people who haven't been there before, uh, I, will, I will recommend to them or I will take them up to the DMZ. Mm. Um, you know, I never got to Eastern Europe before the wall came down. Um, and I think that this uh, boundary between North and South Korea is probably the last place on earth that really exists like that. And it is really amazing. So for people who aren't familiar, it's a demilitarized zone, approximately 30 kilometers wide um, between North and South Korea. And this was put up at the end of the Korean War. Um, and nobody's been allowed inside of it except under special permission for you know 65 years, almost 60 years. And so this area has uh, stood still in time, really, and it's quite amazing. But a number of things happened around the DMZ. And one of the things that happened was <clears throat> the North Koreans in the 1970s apparently dug tunnels underneath the DMZ. Um, it's not clear that they were actually planning to invade South Korea, but they wanted to be prepared, I think, to invade South Korea if it ever came to that. And the South Koreans found out that these tunnels were being dug, and so they dug their own tunnels down and intersected them, found the tunnels, <laughs> said to the North Koreans, hey, what are these? And the North Koreans said, I don't know. <laughs> you dug those. I know nothing. <laughs> I, I don't know anything about that. I don't know where that came from. And, and so, you know, there was this kind of tense diplomatic standoff for a while, but eventually blew over. And, and then what the South Koreans did was they basically went to Switzerland. They got this earth boring machine, like the one that they used to dig the channel. They dug this perfect borehole into the earth. And by the way, up there where it's at, it's solid granite, right? Yeah. And so they dug this perfect borehole down into the earth at this nice, you know, sloping 25 degree angle. They put a little tram in there and they turned the entrance to it into an amusement park. <laughs> and so here you've got this perfect juxtaposition, right, between the, the communist north and the, and the, you know, the capitalist south, right? The, the North Koreans spend untold you know, man hours toiling and slaving away with pickaxes and dynamite, literally, digging these tunnels by hand through granite. And the South Koreans go and get this tool and turn it into a money-making venture. Yeah, the, the right? 
TBM or the tunnel boring machine. Yeah. Did, did you ever go on the tunnel tour? I did. I yeah. did. I've been down there many, many times. I, I did that. It's it's a good hike. It's a good cardio coming back. It is. Because you have to climb it, out of it. Yeah. Um, did you ever go in the military armistice commission buildings, the MAC building? I did. I went in the MAC buildings. I went in, I, I went all all over. I went to the uh, the war memorial. Yeah. I had an uncle that actually fought and died in, in the Korean War. Wow. I saw his name up on the up on the plaques wow. up there. Um so, so yeah, I mean, it's a very powerful place, obviously, and uh, uh, you really feel, you know, what was going on there if you uh, if you spend any time there. Uh, yeah, so. I'm I'm very fond of Korea. I love going back there because uh, yeah. you know, we raised our, our child there. And, yeah, wow, uh, a lot of a lot of memories. Um, but I'm gonna shift gears again and sure. talk to you about quantum dots. All right, uh, because that's. The main focus, actually, uh, SID's Display Week is this week. And uh, this Display Week marks the 10-year anniversary of uh, Nanasys showing uh, the first public demo of quantum dots uh, at Display Week 2011. So that demo won you a Best in Show award, and it was an early inflection point in the adoption of quantum dots. Um, now. Prior to that time, when you joined Nanosys in 2008, the company was working on all kinds of different things and not specifically displays. Um, and there were certainly no quantum dot products uh, in the display market at that time. And you know, fast forward to today, there's hundreds of products in the market with tens of millions of quantum dot displays that have been shipping since 2013. And Nanosys is the leader uh, in the development of IP and uh, shipment of uh, this technology. What led you to focus on the display opportunity? And was this your first target application? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. So when I came into the company, we had exclusively in license the technology behind quantum dots from MIT and Munji Buendi's lab, from Paul Alavasados at Lawrence Berkeley National Labs, and a few other leading research institutions around the country and around the world, actually. Uh, Yuri Benin in Israel, for example. And, uh, but for whatever reason, prior to my joining, the company hadn't chosen to focus on this. It had also in-licensed an extremely large portfolio of other nanotechnologies, including uh, nanowires, tetrapods, uh, various different types of metal nanostructures, and so the application space was really very huge that the company was trying to explore. And it had done a little bit of dabbling with quantum dots, but it really was looking at general illumination more than it was looking at, at display, for example. Mm. So when I was asked to look at the company, I came in, I looked at all the different technologies that were at play and that the company had programs in, about 19 in total, which was really amazing for such a small company. It, it reminded me tremendously of, of HP Labs, actually. Really high quality scientists, really high quality work, but not extremely market directed or you know problem directed even, right? So there wasn't a, an orientation towards, you know, hey, there's an unmet need out there in the world. Let's see what can be done to, to address that. And, and so I brought a lot of that kind of background and discipline. Um, and what I could see with quantum dots was they're really good, in fact, superior to any other technology that I'd ever seen and that I've ever seen to date 
in terms of being a narrowband emitter that can emit with extremely high efficiency at any wavelength. And this is because we use the size-dependent quantum confinement phenomena to set the effective band gap of the material rather than the bulk material's natural band gap or doping or some other technique. And so this allows us to make these emitters at any you know, visible wavelength that we choose, depending on the, the bulk material we start with. And this makes them perfect for display because to make a perfect display, you need to have perfectly narrow red, green, and blue at the target primaries. And those primaries might vary a little bit depending on the color space you're in. Adobe is a little bit different than sRGB, a little bit different than DCI, a little bit different than Rec 2020, but the concept still applies. The more narrow and the more precisely located the primary is in the, in the display, the better the quality of color fidelity is going to be. And so these are, on the other hand, you know, questionable at best for general illumination because for general illumination, you want kind of a wide band emitter mm -hmm. and these are very narrow. So just that simple realization of the quality of emitter, the fact that you don't have any bulk band gap material, which is a really high efficiency emitter in either green or even in red. Red's not too bad, but, but green is terrible, right? There's a, this so-called green gap within the, and it's well known that you, you don't have a good solution for green LEDs. And so, you know, on the other hand, we could make these, these green quantum dot materials here. They're, they're shown here as photonically pumped. But, you know, internal quantum efficiency of these things is close to 100%. Um, and again, this wavelength is probably just guessing here, looking at it, it's probably 528 or something, but we can make any wavelength of green that we want. Um, and you don't have that latitude uh, or degree of freedom in terms of design with any other uh, material. So this was very clearly uh, the, the right place for quantum dots was in display. Um, Challenges were that, that we had never, we only had the materials in that form that you're looking at right there. We had them in solution, very dilute. They were very, very unstable. And how do you go from that into an actual display product? Uh, that was a big, big question mark and big challenge. And that's where some of the real secret sauce uh, for this, this company uh, yeah, came absolutely. from. Yeah. And, and it leads me to another question, which is, by now, the market for quantum dots has become huge. Mm -hmm. uh, and Nanosys is still a relatively small uh, company. I think you've got about 100 employees. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And yet, you remain the leader. Yeah. And not for the lack of some other really large companies trying mm -hmm. uh, to get into uh, this field. Yeah. Uh, yet, uh, Nanosys has dominant market share. Whether you're actually making the dots or whether they're under license, uh, it's uh, by and large Nanosys technology. Mm -hmm. Why is it that Nanosys has been able to uh, maintain that leadership and, and actually dominance uh, in, in such a large market? Yeah, we have, we have an amazing team uh, for starters. Uh, you know, we were able to build just an incredible uh, brain trust of, of people here. That's been a huge help. But in the process of going through this commercialization effort, uh, we've learned so much and you know you in your career and I'm sure many of the people watching this have have taken products from laboratory scale up into the mass production 
And having done that a number of times, you know, into the billions of units, uh, there's a lot that occurs to take something from a first article into actually being a full product that the consumer can use. And so if you never actually get there to the consumer product level, you never learn those things, no matter what you do in the laboratory. You might think you have, but you really haven't. And so being able to make these materials so that they're consistent, so that they withstand all of the foul treatment, the rigors, whatever you want to call it, that happen to them between the time that they leave our facility and the time they actually wind up in the consumer's television in their living room, you know, there's a tremendous amount of learning that goes into that process uh, to get that there. And, and we've had to modify the materials continuously as those requirements have evolved. And so, you know, one of those, for example, is we went from the original set of materials, which were completely uh, unstable. We had to take those materials and we had to seal them into hermetic chambers in order for them to be used. Wow. Um, and so this was the very first product that the company tried to make was a specific green emitter, uh, illuminator, right? A specific mm. green wavelength illuminator for a military cockpit heads-up display. Um, and this involved taking the quantum dot materials, largely in the format that you see there, uh, in, in a particular solution with certain extra chemicals in the solution in order to try and stabilize them, put that into a sapphire chamber, seal that into a, a titanium housing so that the thing wouldn't come apart, you know, in flight during the, you know, this was a fighter plane after all, so it had a lot of physical requirements on it as well. And that was the level of stabilization that the dots needed at that time. And that was 2009, you know, when I came on board. So, so that's not gonna make it into a consumer product. So there's a lot of chemistry we had to do to go from, okay, you've got a high efficiency core shell quantum dot to you actually have something that can be mass produced in a, in a factory at a cost point and with the kind of uh, uniformity and consistency and durability that's needed. But even that required us to make this, um, we basically, the first instantiation, which I've got here, this is an original sample of the film that we made back in those days. So, oh, nice. Um, this was, and, and you know, you can see it's even wrinkly and has some defects to it, right? So uh, in the early days, we, we weren't perfect at making these yet. And what this is, is uh, it's the green and red quantum dots uh, sandwiched between two layers of barrier film. And the, in this particular case, we'd done a lot of work to try and help uh, stabilize the quantum dots, but they still weren't completely stable against moisture and oxygen. So in order to make them so, uh, in order to make them, you know, basically survive in the TV, we had to laminate it in between these barrier-coated plastic films. And these barrier-coated plastic films are rather expensive because you have to take a sheet of plastic, put oxide on it, make sure it doesn't have any pinholes, et cetera. And, you know, overall, again, that was an implementation that got us into market, but it was still pretty expensive overall. That first Kindle Fire uh, product that we were uh, designed into uh, in 2013 that kind of launched the whole thing, I think the film cost at that point was about $300 a square meter. Wow. Right? 
So for that little seven-inch piece that, that Amazon wound up putting in their, in their tablet, they paid you know something like three or three dollars, even though it was just a tiny little sheet of film. That's a huge amount of expense for a product like a Kindle. Yeah, the product yeah. itself sold for ninety nine dollars, right? Yeah. So, so that was that was really crazy. Um, but we continue to work on improving the stability of the materials. We got to a place where we could use less rigorous barrier films. Uh, barrier films are rated on the basis of how much water vapor they'll transmit. And so we went from the very first implementation with a, a water vapor transmission of uh, 10 to the minus 6. Oh, that's, that's OLED encapsulation OLED encapsulation, quality. exactly. That's, that's such a, exactly. that's one drop of water on a football field. That's basically. right, exactly. One <laughs> drop of water on a football field permeating through the plastic in a day. That's exactly it, yeah. right? And then we went to... Um, 10 to the minus third was necessary for kind of a next generation, slightly more stable materials, um, to where we are today, which is we've made materials now which are completely air stable. And this is something that we've just introduced this year. This is a little piece of powder that I've got in here. This is um, completely air stabilized quantum dot materials. Yeah, that's, that's not in vacuum. It's that's, not in vacuum. This is an so air. We could take this the, is, uh, it off. We could. Atmospheric pressure. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and what that enables now is for us to be able to have our customers implement even newer form factors that further reduce costs. So this is a really cool product. This is an extruded light guide plate that goes together with a mini LED backlight. And again, it features those quantum dots inside. So they're going to absorb that blue light energy. They're going to convert it into uh, this is a blue illuminator. They're going to convert that into white light energy uh, with those perfect red, green, blue peaks coming out. But this has no barrier. This is just extruded plastic. So sure. this powder is mixed together into a master batch and extruded out with the extruded plastic into this, into this uh, diffuser plate. And now the cost of implementing the quantum dots has really dropped down. And so without those barrier film costs and with this single component architecture, uh, we're, we're seeing tremendous uptake of this now. And I don't see any reason why this can't be used in every television that's out there today. Well, um, so here we have another example of you taking some really great technology, as you did with the scanner technology at HP, mm -hmm. turning it into the optical mouse. There was, uh, when, you, when you took over this company, just some great technology, but you pivoted once again mm -hmm. to turn that into a, a commercial uh, absolute success. So uh, congratulations Thanks. on that. Thanks, Brian. Um, yeah. Did I ever tell you my, my theory of kind of exponents? And, and you and I have both worked around high volume mass production. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I ever told you. I, no, you didn't. Well, it's at, at every uh, 10 to the X, you learn something. So 10 to the zero, you build something, it's your existence proof, right? right? And right. you built one, that's great. But then when you build 10 of them, so 10 to the one, yeah. you learn more. And then yeah. you get to validation, engineering validation quantities, 10 yeah. to the two, you learn something else, 10 yeah. to the three. Every level of exponent up yeah. uh, requires a new degree of, of learning right. uh, uh, up to, you know, you're building 10 to the six every month of something, a right. million a month, uh, that's a new learning. Yeah. Now, here, in Milpitas, California, we're, we're in the Nanosys headquarters. Uh, you all are manufacturing. You're not just developing the IP. Mm -hmm. 
uh, for the quantum dots, but you're actually manufacturing quantum dots even in this facility. It's not yeah. the only place, but, but uh, yeah. why has Nanasys chosen to do manufacturing of the quantum dots? Uh, is, is that that 10 to the 6, 10 to the 7 learning uh, yeah. that we're talking about here? No, it absolutely is. That's a, I, I love that uh, nomenclature that you've got. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal it from you. Go Ho ahead. Hopefully you didn't uh, copyright it or anything. <laughs> Um, no, the, I, the Berkeley I, exponent of development rule. I love it. I love it. There you go. It's like Moore's law, right? So, uh, I think you're exactly right. And that is precisely why I chose to do this because what well, we're innovating new materials, we've got a brand new material system that we developed specifically for a next generation application, which we call color conversion, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but this is a completely new semiconductor that we're using to make quantum dots with. Um, so it was the reason we chose it in particular, this particular semiconductor and, and, uh, material construction was, was to meet certain requirements that the customers had and, um, our conventional materials like indium phosphide just weren't going to be able to get there. And in particular, what they were looking for was something that had very high absorption. And so the absorption cross section or the absorption profile of this new material is extremely high, you know, two to three times higher than it is for indium phosphide. But it's still heavy metal free. So these are these are the characteristics that customers are looking for. But what do I do with that? Now that I've I've made I've made 10 to the zero, I've made 10 to the one, I've made even 10 to the two of these, am I really gonna turn that over to one of my manufacturing partners in Asia and say, okay, now you go make 10 to the sixth or 10 to the seventh of these, right? Because we're at I mean, we're at 10 to the eighth now, right? We got 35 million units out there in the market so far. It's just not practical to make that kind of leap, right? Yeah. And so we have to go, you know, into some sort of pilot phase, true manufacturing, because there is a, just a ton of learning that affects the chemistry. And so we have to figure out exactly how the chemistry, and in some cases the equipment, that we use to produce these materials needs to be altered or modified to go from, you know, the two liter scale to the 1200 liter scale, which is the largest reactor that we have here on site. And our partners have up to 3000 liter reactors on their sites. So to go from 1200 liters to 3000 liters, you know, they can do that no problem. But, you know, we really need to be able to, to validate that the basic chemistry that we've chosen will scale before we can realistically transfer it. The second thing is uh, sometimes it requires tweaks on the mm -hmm. process. And you know those tweaks may not be something that are immediately available. And we run, again, this is a pilot facility, so we're able to, to implement those tweaks very quickly, right? This is not really geared up to make, um, you know, 30 million TVs worth of material in this facility, you know, on a continuous basis. This facility is really set up to make, you know, a few million TVs here, a few million TVs there, five tens. Just, you know, just a few million. Just a few million, okay. right? <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's still, it's different, right? Yeah. We, can, we can do that with a heavy mix. I think last year out of this facility, we shipped something like 20 or 30 different part numbers, right? Um, we shipped millions of TVs worth of material but lots of different permutations. Um, and again, at the early stages of adoption of new materials, for example, this one, right? Um, we're still learning exactly what the customer 
you know, feedback is going to be, he hasn't made yet uh, 10 million of these extruded film sheets yet. But when he does, you know, as he does, he's going to have more and more feedback for us. That's going to cause us to want to make, again, minor but perhaps significant changes in our process and in our construction of materials. Once we get that to a stable point, that's a real good time for us to transfer it to a volume chemical manufacturing facility. So, ah. yeah. When, when did you realize that the market was turning in favor of quantum dots? Yeah, that's a great question. I had so many people tell me uh, over the period, for example, from 2013 2000, through at least 2017, that, oh, this is just going to be like 3D. 3D glasses, <laughs> and you know it's not sticky, and you know maybe people are going to pull it out, maybe it's not going to happen, etc. Right? So there, there was definitely a lot of doubt. Um, but in 2017, we passed 100 SKUs total that had implemented it um, to date, and I think at that point I was pretty confident that uh, it was going to go somewhere. Uh, it was also the time frame that people started to really talk about the Q, right, in their product branding. So up until that point, there was a lot of, you know, this has got some special new color technology in it. Or, you know, people, I mean, the Amazon, you know, product, it didn't call out the, the quantum dots at all. There was no mention of quantum dots on any of the product packaging or labeling. So many people didn't even know they were in there. Um, but people started to actually call it out then and start to say, oh, yeah, these are quantum dots. This is something, you know, this is a feature of the product. Um, and, of course, you know, it's got tremendous benefits. It's got tremendous, you know, lifelike visceral viewing experience that it brings to people. And, and when people see it, they're like, wow, I could, had no idea how much I was missing when I didn't have this. But... You know, that kind of threshold, I'd say, 2017 was probably the point. 100 SKUs total, people start, you know, calling it out in their product merchandising. 2018, we had more and more of that. And then, you know, last year, um, last year alone, there was, uh, I don't know, I don't remember exactly, but, um, you know, to date so far now, we're up over 500 uh, SKUs that have, have used the technology uh, to date. And uh, every year, this number accelerates in terms of how many how many new SKUs there are that are coming out. So, and, and uh, most of those come out and say with quantum dots, or they have Q yeah. in their right, like QLED or yep. Q whatever, uh, where they're featuring it. Absolutely, and that's that's a yeah. that's a feature Absolutely. for many people becoming a checkbox item. Well, I don't want right. that unless it's got the right. the the Q in it. Yeah, 65% of what they call the advanced TV market, 65% of those units using uh, quantum dots today. Um, and, yeah, in the overall TV market, I think this year probably be about 10% of total TV units uh, wow. shipped um, will use quantum dots. It's really moved into the mainstream. Yeah. Especially yeah. for premium products. Absolutely. Absolutely. What, what's the toughest thing that you've had to do at Nanosys, or what's been the biggest challenge uh, for you? Wow, that's a really hard question. Um, you know, I think creating this vision and, and making it real for people was something that required a lot of, uh, 
thinking through and problem solving in ways I, I'm not used to. I mean, I'm an engineer, and so I, I like problems, and I, I'm, you know, generally pretty good at solving them. But, uh, you know, how do I get investors to believe this vision? How do I get people to actually commit money and capital towards the enterprise so I can do the things that I say are going to happen in the marketplace? I mean, because none of this was guaranteed. I believed it. I have a track record of doing it, so I felt like, well, I've got some credibility here. But still, you know, to actually come up with and get the capital necessary to do it, um, that was a real new experience for me. Because everything else I'd ever done in my career, whether it was HP Labs, Agilent, or Magnachip, you know, I didn't really do a lot of fundraising. Uh, in, in, on a, I participated in the fundraising and the, you know, the road shows and the, the investor days and things like that, but it didn't have the same kind of meaning for me as this did. You know, I actually had to walk into people's, you know, offices on Sand Hill Row in, you know, in 2010 and tell them, you know, show up with a bottle of this and tell them that, <laughs> you know, hey, I'm going to make all the TVs in the world are going to use this and it's, it's going to be a, a visceral experience that people just can't resist and it's going to be a success. And, you know, figuring I, I, out. I, I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Oh, and I, and I want to do hardware. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually want to build it. I want to do some manufacturing here yeah. in America in yeah. Silicon Valley. Yeah. They probably thought you were nuts. <laughs> I, I, I get that a lot. I get that a lot. Oh, even today? Oh, always. In spite of the success? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, well, what's if there's an easy way to do things and a hard way, <laughs> I generally seem to choose the hard way. So. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and your, your success has prevailed. Yeah. So uh, right. that's great. Um, what, what do you think is the toughest thing about quantum dots going forward? Is it the stability? Is it the functionalization? Is it, is it efficiency targets? Is mm -hmm. it ROHS, uh, Rojas? What, what do you think is the hardest thing in, in front of the company now? So as we're going forward now, we've, we've been very successful and, you know, touch wood will continue to be successful with quantum dots in the backlight for LCD. But going forward now, our customers have begun to see that these materials have a lot of potential that's untapped in that architecture and in that configuration. And as you know, most of the things that people are working on as far as future display technologies are all emissive. They're either OLED, self-emissive, micro-LED, self-emissive, or even quantum dot electroluminescent self-emissive materials. And so the way in which we can integrate quantum dots into those architectures to improve performance, solve manufacturing challenges, reduce costs, those become the next forefront or the next frontier for us as far as how we're going to use these materials. And so they present different challenges for sure. And for example, in, in the optical film uh, category, we do not pattern these materials at all. So it's just a, a generic mix of red and green. We've got to make sure it's dispersed evenly and that it's very uniform. But we're not doing any sort of pixel level patterning with these materials. But when we talk about doing what we call color conversion, which is where, for example, with an OLED uh, as, as essentially the backlight. So you've got an array of OLED pixels. Let's call them, let's say they're all blue. And in front of those, you put down an array 
of pixel level, pixel sized optical converters, which are going to absorb the blue light energy into the quantum dot stack uh, and either convert it to green or red light on the outbound side. So this is a great innovation in terms of resolving, you know, for once, the problem of doing red, green, blue OLED based emitters on a large panel. As you know well, uh, this is done for small panel and you can actually pattern the red, green, and blue OLED emitter material itself using the fine metal mesh mask technology. It is, it is much harder to pattern uh, red, green, uh, and for that matter, blue OLED materials onto a large substrate. Exactly. Yeah, much, exactly. much harder. Exactly. And so people really haven't been able to take that technology of patterning red, green, blue on large panel, large substrate, uh, into any kind of real volume mass production. So the idea here is rather than do that, you just have a uniform blue array in the backlight. And then on the front of that, you put these quantum dots that will absorb the blue light and convert it into either your red or green at your red and green subpixel areas. Um, but this requires the ability now to pattern the quantum dots and make very thin films of quantum dots that absorb 100% of the blue light energy. And so we have to worry about how we pack the quantum dots much more densely uh, because we go from films in the uh, backlight film case that are 100 microns or in the case of this light guide plate even more than 100 microns to films that are only a few microns thick. And they have to absorb 100% mm -hmm. instead of in this application maybe they're only absorbing 70% and we're letting 20%, 30% of the blue light energy come through so you get that red, green, blue, white balance. So denser packing, functionalization of the materials so that they will be consistent with patterning, whether that patterning is done through photoresist techniques, through liftoff techniques, through uh, other types of techniques like inkjet printing, um, meaning that the materials have to go into other systems uh, polymers and, and other types of, of ligands that allow them to be processed in these environments and not just processed down to make those color converting arrays of subpixels at the you know micron size level but also be able to survive all the subsequent treatments and processing that's going to happen to the panel after those are put down because as you know you've got thermal budgets for you know all the other steps so the, the dots now have to not just survive the initial deposition, they have to survive subsequent processing steps. They have to you know, not delaminate, not flake off, not peel. If you put too many dots down and not enough binder, then the thing becomes powdery and just blows away and doesn't, doesn't you know, stay consistent and uniform. And there's just a lot of challenges here with these nanoscale materials, such high surface area, how to do those integrations. And at the same time, in this application, the flux levels that the dots might see, especially for things like micro LED, can go much higher than it is today in today's application. And that's not because the display, in some cases it might be because the display is brighter itself for an application like artificial reality. Um, where you're actually trying to, or augmented reality, I should say, where you're, where you're doing a projection type uh, of display. But in some cases, it's just simply because the size of the emitter is so tiny 
that the flux density is much, much higher. So you, you have the same number of photons that you might have in a larger area pixel, but they're coming out of, a, of an aperture, out of an emitter that's very, very tiny, so that flux density goes up. So we've got to be making materials which are higher flux density, that pack more densely, that are formulated for patternability. Um, and so these are some of the challenges that, that we currently are tackling and, and we have uh, successfully solved for a number of customers and, and they're working on implementations of, of these uh, today in their products. Um, we hope to see the first of those come to, come to market uh, at the end of this year, actually. So it's going to be very exciting. That, that sounds incredibly exciting, and yeah. I look forward to seeing those products. Um, you know, I am often taken into the labs and am able to see prototypes, but that hasn't been possible uh, with COVID uh, yeah. uh, for the past year and a half or so, and so it'll be uh, wonderful to see the actual prototypes. I've heard the performance is outstanding. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, speaking of uh, emissive displays, uh, Anasys had a very big announcement this week, yeah, uh, and, and I want to talk about that. Yeah, it, it was announced that uh, you guys have acquired Glow, mm -hmm. uh, which is a micro LED developer, and and you know on the surface it seems like a big change in mission for a quantum dot company. So uh, how about walking us through the rationale and uh, letting us know how micro LED fits into your overall product roadmap? Yeah, sure, of course. So my mission for how we evolve as a company has always been that we would be making displays, right? The, the, the key piece of this was how do we get from that level of, you know, existence where we were in 2008 and very hard to raise venture financing for this type of enterprise, as you, as you indicated, to a place where we could actually make electroemissive quantum dot displays because I believe that that is the ultimate instantiation for these materials. Instead of photonically pumping them, we can directly charge, inject uh, electrons and holes into the quantum dots in a thin film layer and make them emit. And we've done this and we've shown demos. Most recently, we had a 55 inch TV demo together with uh, BOE. It's a beautiful product. And the thing about it is it's all solution printed. So there's no evaporative processing steps necessary for any of the stack materials. So you get out of that old cabal of, you know, the vacuum tool vendors basically, you know, holding you hostage in your factory. And, and you don't have to do this at vacuum and you don't have to do it at temperature? That's right. Wow. That's right. So this enables, you know, a completely new way of thinking about making displays. And, but... The challenge is that uh, in terms of overall lifetime and readiness for manufacturing, we're still some years away uh, from, from that being a product that the consumer is going to be able to put on his, on his go down to Best Buy and, and, and get and put on, on the shelf or on the wall. So <clears throat> micro-LED, we believe, is absolutely going to be in between where we are today and where that eventual future lies. Um, we believe that micro-LED has tremendous value in applications that require extremely high brightness and extremely fine pitch uh, of, the, of the actual pixel size itself. So, for example, if you're going to do an artificial reality, uh, or sorry, augmented reality uh, headset, you know, you've got to put this illuminator into a pair of glasses. So maybe you've got 0.1-inch diagonal. 
uh, on the on the uh, illuminator or on the on the display. This thing's going to project onto the the glasses that are in front of the eye. And what's a reasonable number of pixels across the field? Let's say for argument's sake, it's a thousand. This means across a 0.1 inch diagonal, thousand pixels. It's 10,000 PPI. Wow. This means your pixel size has got to be two <clears throat> microns. And at the same time, you have to be able to generate enough photons so that the projected and reflected to the eye box uh, uh, amount of illumination is sufficient to overcome whatever background there is. So I'm wearing these things and I'm outside and it's a 100,000 nit sort of reflected environment. I've got to have enough light energy off of my lens reflected to my eye that I can still see the image and not have it wash out. So this means I need to have extremely bright, relatively, you know, very efficient power consumption and um, very fine pitch. And so we believe that micro LED is really key for this. But to make two micron micro LED red, green, and blue pixels turns out to be almost impossible because you have so many defects at the edge when you create these tiny, tiny micro LEDs, you basically have a tremendous amount, the, the amount of edge area on the LED relative to the amount of bulk area is huge, right? So because you've made them so tiny. And in the particular case of red, you've got this very long lifetime of the minority carrier, the red excited state energy. And so it inevitably finds defects in these tiny, the tinier you make the red LED, <laughs> the efficiency just basically falls off a cliff and goes to zero. It's not as bad for blue. The blue lifetime's pretty short. And so the blue manages to still find enough recombination zones without hitting those defects on the edge, you get still pretty good efficiency. So we take a blue micro LED, put red quantum dots on top of it. This becomes a very viable, oh. ultra tiny red emitter for micro LED purposes. We think this is really one of the only ways, if not the only way to solve this problem of how you make ultimately tiny red micro LEDs with high efficiency. Um, we don't see another way to do it. So. The melding of these two technologies together is very, very important for industry, I think, especially for tiny micro-LEDs, which ultimately you want tiny micro-LEDs for everything. Even if you're going to put them on pitches that are relatively large, you still want tiny size of devices, <coughs> tiny sizes of chips, because otherwise you wind up using a huge amount of LED area. The new Samsung 100-inch TV that they just brought out, it's $100,000. And people are saying, or it's more than 100, it's like $150,000, you're right. right. I think it's 100,000 euros. So, you know, why is that? Well, we did a calculation and we came to, to realize that the amount of LED area, not at factoring in yield, just what is actually in the 100-inch TV on the wall is six LED wafers. Wow. Right? It's six LED wafers. That's you know, too much. That's way too much, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, you need to have many TVs per LED wafer, right? And so in order to do that, you have to make the micro LEDs really tiny. You can't have gigantic ones. And right. They're using very large ones. So, so you need tiny micro LEDs. Making tiny red especially is extremely hard. Um, quantum dots together with uh, blue is, we think, a great solution for that. But that requires a lot of integration uh, in order to make that work. And so working together directly with the micro LED technology gives us a very unique capability 
that no one else has in order to solve these integration challenges and problems. Um, so that's one of the rationales for, for the acquisition. So will, I think I know the answer to this sure. now, but will Nanasys continue to develop uh, micro LEDs without uh, quantum dot color conversion, or is it all gonna be QDCC based? Yeah, so uh, we're gonna work with the market and with our customers. And you know, if our customers are, are looking for specific uh, red, green, blue, native red, green, blue emitter type products, then that's absolutely what we're gonna be able to provide. Uh, the Glow team has done a tremendous job of developing that. I think they're the only company in the world that have shown that they can do uh, red, green, blue, uh, separate mass transferred onto substrate, either CMOS or LTPS, uh, at these very, very tiny pitches, below 20 micron uh, type uh, pixel sizes. And you know this is uh, tremendous uh, for today's applications. Um, as we go forward into the future, uh, we're going to work towards those kind of, you know, two micron sizes that we talked about. Um, but for, for many applications today, for automotive HUD and for others, um, you know, the, the technology today is really at a level that it's, it's quite commercializable, I think. Very good. Uh, looking out three to five years, um, what is your vision for quantum dots and what should we in the industry expect? Yeah, so today, uh, quantum dots are used by tens of millions of people um, every day, right? Um, 35 million units uh, cumulatively shipped out into the world um, from our customers uh, as of the end of last year. And going forward, we see that number is just going to continue to increase. I believe we're going to have a billion people using quantum dots in their everyday lives. Uh, those will come in the form of, again, enhancements to LCD, but increasingly they're going to come in the form of enabling technology for new architectures. How you can actually pattern red, green, and blue emitters on large panel OLED. How you can do very, very tiny micro LEDs and have high efficiency and ultimately how you can do this solution printed electroluminescent quantum dots, which will give you tremendous freedom uh, in terms of manufacturing. They'll allow you to do, for example, different types of substrates, different types of form factors, things that people aren't able to do today because they're really locked into, well, I need a sheet of glass. Even if I do a flexible OLED, as you know, I still have to mount it to a sheet of glass in order to put it into that CVD furnace, right? And so, mm. you know, being able to get away from that is gonna open up a lot of possibilities. And so, yeah, quantum dots are gonna be a very mainstream part of the future of display. Um, this is the display show. Uh, so looking out a little more broadly, um, what do you see uh, about the industry and what do you feel is the biggest challenge facing the display industry. Mm. So I hope the display industry really takes a lesson from the COVID era. What we've seen as a result of a lot of different things that have happened, disruption of the supply chains, uh, increasing commodity prices, lots of other things that have, that have happened. What we've seen is that the consumer actually has a desire for higher quality 
products. I think that anyone, if you ask executives in the display space what the average selling price needed to be for a given size of TV in 2018, you know, if you ask them that question and said, give me a forecast for what that's going to be, what will a consumer tolerate in 2020? He would have given you a number. It's probably 30% lower than what people actually paid in 2020, right? And people bought larger TVs. They bought more feature-rich TVs. They brought better experiences, right? Um, and so because the supply chain disruptions that occurred, you know, went down the way they did, manufacturers ended up exporting those products disproportionate to prior years, right? So in prior years, shipping is basically very low cost and I've got plenty of video driver components and so I'm just going to make my whole range of product lineup from, you know, a $29 32-inch TV all the way up, right? But I'm going to make very few high-quality products um, in terms of my overall mix of product I'm going to generate. But now I have reductions in all of those things and I can't make so many units. You know, they wind up just focusing on the, on the better products. And the consumers love that. The consumers bought those products. So I think that the display industry should really try to take a moment and look at, you know, what is the, the demand side look like in the industry instead of what's the supply side look like. This has always been a supply-driven industry. And so it's been a race to the bottom because people just put up factories and they have a desire to fill the factories up. And so the guy who bids the lowest for the business gets it, he fills his factory. And this has resulted in price points that, and, and products, quite frankly, that didn't have the quality. Um, but, you know, I think the consumer wants more. And I hope that the industry sees that, listens to that, and starts to, in general, shift towards, you know, making uh, higher quality products for, for the consumer. So not just value innovation, but also performance and yeah. feature innovation. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. I think that's tremendously important. Um, I think we're seeing that in other categories, too. So you're seeing that in phones. Oh, Everybody yeah. had expected, you know, race to the bottom. It's like, no. Yeah. People want the higher quality cameras. And Absolutely. They want, you know, yeah. Absolutely. Um, uh, so there's a lesson in that for all of us. Oh, yeah. Um, what do you think about displays making the world a better place? Uh, do you think there's an opportunity there? I think it, they already have, and there's a tremendous opportunity to do more so. I believe that we are seeing an era right now where we live more and more of our lives, either in the digital realm or augmented by the digital realm. There's no question about this. And so what do we need to really take full advantage of that new paradigm? We need better bridges from the real visceral world into the digital realm, right? That's these immersive entertainment experiences. That's enhanced ways we can interact with e-commerce. Uh, that's many, many the, the ways in which digital data can augment you know, our, our everyday lives, our driving experiences, all the things that we do can be enhanced by this if we have a better bridge to bring that digital data into our world. And our world, let's face it, is primarily through our eyes. That's our main way we perceive the world. And so 
How well, it's certainly our highest bandwidth channel. It absolutely is, yeah. right? Yeah, it's like 20 times or more higher than any other, you know, sense that we have. And so this is, this is really the, the place that I think displays can tremendously improve lives um, for everyone um, as, we, as we look at more digitization and what that means. There's going to be more services, more data available to help us and live better lives and experience, you know, uh, life in a, in a more fulfilled manner or a greater manner if we can find ways to, to get into that world, right? And so that's what I hope Display can do. I, I'm personally looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, now, I've got a bonus question for you. Sure. <laughs> the last couple of uh, episodes of the Display Show, we've had... Um, dialogue literally about burning display uh, <laughs> prototypes or burning display demos uh, that, that have occurred. And um, yet it worked out okay to where from this, uh, you know, near disaster, you ended up with a, with a good outcome. Yeah. <laughs> you managed yeah. to salvage the demo and, and uh, have success. So this happened to be on an, on an HDR uh, display demo. Yeah. Uh, but I wondered if there's anything like that in, in uh uh, Nanus's history, where you had a situation that was really tough, maybe a demo that was uh, going down the toilet, and you managed to turn it into a good thing. Um, um, so we had, I don't know if this, I mean, ultimately, everything worked out, right? So uh, in the end, <laughs> yeah, you know. But the one story that comes to my mind is um, there was a, a person uh, in the LED lighting industry that was really well respected, um, kind of a guru of of, <laughs> uh, of the industry, and we uh, at that time we hadn't yet arrived at this optical film kind of construction, um, but we were somewhere in between the hermetically sealed uh, sapphire and and this thing, and so one of the implementations we had was we had the dots sandwiched in between two sheets of glass, right? And uh, this was sealed well, with some sort of an epoxy uh, material. And uh, we had this mounted as a remote phosphor on top of an LED. And we took this down uh, to meet with this guy and very influential guy in industry. <laughs> and, you know, our, our sales guy, um, flips on the demo, and sure enough, you know, there it is. The blue LED's glowing. The little remote phosphor is doing its job. The light that's coming off just looks great, you know. And the guy looks at it, and he's like, that's, and of course, you know, it's an engineering thing, right? So there's a potentiometer on it, a little power supply and the whole thing. And he's like, well, that seems kind of dim. And he just reaches over, and he <laughs> turns the pot, right? <laughs> And the thing literally exploded. Because <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> whatever polymer we used in it just was not going to take that heat. And that thing was just sandwiched together. It was, a, it was a tight little seal, right? And so that polymer expanded, and that thing is made out of glass, and there's just, I don't know, little micro fragments of glass just oh, flew no. everywhere. And it made like an actual little pop sound, like a very small firecracker. And uh, it didn't start a fire, but um, it was pretty embarrassing nevertheless. So. Uh, 
Um, well, and then things have worked out anyway. Things have so worked I, out. I, I we guess that's we okay. got better polymers. We, uh, you know, wound up in the film and eventually extruded. So we're all good. So that's that's a great story. Let me let me ask you then another bonus question. Uh, in episode six, we had Regis McKenna uh, uh, as our guest, and oh, he's an amazing icon in Silicon Valley. And we were talking about small companies, and of course, he worked with. Intel when they were small, yeah. and Genentech when they were small. He worked with Apple when they were just uh, uh, pre-incorporation, um, yeah. uh, let alone pre-IPO. Uh, so my question here is, can a small company change the world? Absolutely. All companies start out as small companies. So, you know, Regis is, is an amazing guy. And I've been very blessed to have him on the board uh, at the company since since I joined. And yeah, uh, one of my favorite quotes of all time was uh, about the founding fathers. I forget which one it was that said it, but it was something to the effect of never underestimate what a determined group, uh, what a small determined group can do. Um, and you know, this was uh, uh, example. Uh, of all the companies that you mentioned. And so, yes, absolutely, I believe it can. Well, I think uh, Nanosys already is. Um, Thanks. In fact, uh, so I'd just like to say congratulations on your success with this company. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, thanks for joining us. And I'd also like to thank Nanosys for sponsoring these videos. Yeah, it's fantastic, as I said, to watch them. So thank you so much for doing it. Thanks again, Jason. All right, take care, man.